everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions here live on our show. My name's Tina with my friends, Jay and Wendy. Hi, guys. How you doing? Hello. Hello. We're good. How are you? Good. Great. I'm so happy to be here live with our friends. We just want to remind all of our audience members to um, be sure to... Uh, Remember <laughs> that we are live, and so that means that you can interact with us. Uh, be sure to put your questions down below or any comments or any shout-outs you guys have uh, down in the comments below. We'd love to hear from you. I know last week we had a really great dialogue with some friends. And so, again, if you have questions that you would like answered here and now or anything that any thoughts that you have, be sure to put them in the comments below. And if you'd like to officially submit your question to be featured on our show, uh, be sure to go to our website, BibleAsk.com org forward slash live and you can submit your questions there and um we want to also remind everybody um again thank you so much to our viewers uh we want to welcome you if this is your first time joining us uh we're so glad you're here and if you're a returning viewer we just want to thank you for your loyalty and just um being a faithful member of our of our community so we just want to ask that god blesses you and and thank you so much for joining us and we want to remind everybody, be sure to uh, check us out on all of our social media. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. And be sure to, again, um, like and share our content and um, just as a way of blessing other friends, your friends and family, as it's a wonderful way to do ministry. So before we jump into our questions, I know we have a few tonight. Um, let's go ahead and start with the word of prayer. Jay or Wendy, would you like to start us off? Sure, I'll do it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you please be with us right now. Send your spirit to be with each and every one of us to um, bring us into one accord as we study your truth and thank you for this opportunity to do so and for, for giving us these wonderful messages of love. And may your will be done this evening. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. All right. So let's get started with a first question. All right, so Derek is asking, what is meant by Mark 16, 17? Are we to pray in tongues and pray to speak prophecy? Please explain to me Mark 16 and 17. All right, thank you, Mark. Um, so Mark, what are what you're asking here is a great question. A lot of people struggle with this, I think, and there's a lot of different major misconceptions and or divergent views on this. Um, so let's take a look at first at the verse you cite, Mark 16, 17. And Wendy, would you like to read that verse? Sure. It says, and these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. So here it says new tongues. Um, what does that mean? They will speak with new tongues. So that word there, tongues, is the Greek word glossa. And so glossa is an interesting word, and it just means tongue, um, you know, like the literal tongue in your mouth. Or it could also mean uh, like a language, like a foreign language or a dialect, something of that nature that, you know, people have. So those are the two main definitions of that word. And then we, we, we see this, for example, used in other places like Acts 2.11. If we look at that, Acts 2.11, it talks about the Creeks, the Arabians, all these other people that were there during the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down on the 12 apostles. Uh, on that day, uh, they 
well, though they had the tongue of fire on their heads, they were speaking in tongues. Acts 2.11 says, um, people spoke and said, do we hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God? So they're showing the use of the language. And then you, we can see this again in Revelation 10, verse 11. It says, and he said to me, you must prophesy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So there again, we're not seeing tongues being used as, you know, like this, it's this, um, this weird event where people just say anything nobody knows. No, it's talking about languages, different foreign languages. And uh, also in that verse we just looked at, Revelation 10, 11, uses the word prophesy. And that was also a question that Stan asked, and we will get to that. There we go. Yeah, so you see it up there. You must prophesy again. So what does it mean, prophesy? And you often see this, right? Prophesy versus tongues. And Paul gets into that. So let's go back to what is the purpose of the sign that we have, Jesus saying, of speaking in tongues. It starts off in a section in Mark 16, verse 15, where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go to all the world and preach the gospel. So you have to ask, okay, if you're going to all the world, who are the people who are going there? They're Jews. And what languages do they speak? They speak uh, Aramaic and Greek, maybe Latin, and that was it. Like, you're, they're probably not going to speak ancient Chinese. They're not going to speak in, ancient Gaelic. They're not going to speak, um, you know, a lot of the language of these places they're going to go. Like, Paul wanted to go to Spain. He kept saying many times, I want to go to Spain. Well, uh, did he know ancient Spanish? Probably not. Uh, whatever they, they spoke there at the time. So to overcome this problem, this challenge that God created back at the day of when he caused confusion at Babel, God gives this gift of tongues so that his people can go anywhere and, or be heard anywhere. So that it's not going to be a hindrance. Language won't be a hindrance to the gospel. And, and so when God says, go into all the world, this is a command, and implicit in that command, or as a part of that command, is this promise that God will make it happen, whatever it takes. And that includes giving the gift of tongues, the gift of languages. And, and then we go on to, after that command, go to all the nations, then we, Jesus says, and these signs will follow. This is in verse 7 of Mark 16. It says, and these signs will follow. For example, in my name, you will cast out demons, and they, believers will speak in new tongues. So these are signs signs of being a, a believer, but they're not doing it. You know, there, it's not like special something like they're mustering up something within them to do it. God is bringing about this sign. And this is confirmed again when you look at verse 20 of Mark 16. It says, and they, the, the apostles and disciples, went out, and, and not just disciples, but all the followers of Christ, they went out, out to the world, and preached everywhere, Everywhere. I mean, China, I mean, we know, like, I think it was Philip uh, who, or Thomas got to India. You know, I mean, so these guys got really far. We know in records, they got to the whole world, just about, I mean, maybe not like Brazil, but in the Amazon, but just about everywhere they could in the known world. So they preached everywhere, and the Lord working with them 
It says, and confirming the word through the company signs. Who, who did this? Who did the signs? It was the Lord working through them. So there's so many people who get so obsessed with, well, I have to speak with tongues. I got to do it. But again, it's, it's not your job to do it. That's God's job to do it when you're in a situation where it will serve a purpose. So why that sign? Why the tongues? Again, it's to share the gospel. It's to reach non-believers. And we see this now um, discussed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. Very important chapter for anybody who's interested on, on, on the gift of tongues. Paul is talking about, hey guys, you know, you're so obsessed with this gift and you're missing the point of it. You aren't using it the right way and you're missing even more important things. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 21. And Paul says, In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. So he's quoting the Old Testament. And in verse 22, Paul says, Therefore tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So if you're with, you're in your church and everybody's there, like you shouldn't be just doing tongues to one another. That's not the point of it. It's to share the gospel to non-believers. Uh, but continuing in verse 22, Paul says, but prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Right? It just sounds so crazy. What are you guys talking all these weird languages? Nobody knows what's going on. It's disorderly. Nobody's learning anything. <laughs> Why would we want to come to this church service, Paul says. But verse 24, he says, but if all prophesy, oh, I like this, all, actually, all people there prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed, uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. So why does prophesying do that? Why does prophesying convince and convict? Um, so a lot of people think prophesying means predicting the future. And that is a component of prophecy. Prophecy involves part of this predicting God or, or God revealing something through divine revelation, such as the future. But that's not the only thing. Um, if you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament, a lot of the prophets, most of their messages are, hey, you guys have this problem, you need to reform, you need to change, you should do this or that. God, God loves you. God has a special message for you. God wants you to hear this. God loves you. you know, that is all prophesying uh, coming from God. And, and indeed, that word prophesy is the Greek word prophetio. Prophetio. <laughs> the interesting word. Uh, but it basically means what we think it is, right? Yeah, and what I'm talking about. So it's not just predicting future, but also um, revealing, declaring things by divine revelation. And so Jesus uses this word, in fact, prophesy, to refer to what the Old Testament did. He says, for all the prophets and the law, referring to like the five books of Moses, prophesied unto John, or until John. Uh, so uh, a good thing to be doing, in fact, is speaking scripture, or reciting scripture, or studying scripture, that's very close then to prophesying. The, the same Holy Spirit that inspired that 
those scriptures can then work in you to interpret them. And Paul's saying it's this gift of prophecy that is the most important, or at least the most desirable spiritual gift. In fact, it just occurred to me, I didn't think about it ahead of time, but um, when you study the Bible and you look at God's end time people in the book of Revelation, the 144,000, what do they have? The Bible says they have the spirit of prophecy, which is the testimony of Jesus. So it's uh it's very important this is a very important thing it's more important than tongues and it's so sad that satan has sort of distracted a lot of us with these things that we think is really cool is really novel maybe it's fun to experience but it's completely missing the mark of what god wants us to really be doing when we come together as believers and that's to prophesy to really explore the messages that god wants us to hear today and now to transform our lives, to build a better relationship with them, and to just have better relationships and have a bigger impact on those around us. So, hope that answered your question. Thank you very much for asking, Stan. Tina, your thoughts? I think that's a really thorough answer. So, yeah. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Nothing to add. Great. Let's uh, welcome a couple of viewers we have. We have Olivia and Rachel. Uh, welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining us again this evening. Great to have you back with us. And you're, yes. you need to speak a little oh, bit louder. <laughs> the mic is kind of far away from me. Uh, but yes, we welcome our, 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 our guests, our viewers today. And if you are tuning in, we're from wherever, we'd welcome you to say hi, drop a question you have and you want answered. You know, we'd love to hear from you. So. Let's go ahead and get our next question up. All right, so Tina is asking, is the rapture the same as the second coming? Ooh, another Tina question for me, Tina. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Tina. It wasn't me who asked it. So the other Tina out there, uh, thank you for this question. This is a really good question. And um, it's a little bit, um, I wanna say tricky uh, because it's yes and no at the same time. Now, the reason I say that is because we have to look at what the word rapture means. And so it depends on what you mean by the word rapture. So let's first go to that, because um, when you look in the dictionary, um, there's multiple definitions for the word rapture. And it can simply mean to be caught up or carried away. Or it can also refer to a Christian theology of this uh, of the rapture, where they believe that there is this um, period where, you know, all of God's people are, um, that are currently saved, get raptured up into heaven. And there's like the seven year period of tribulation and you can still be saved. Maybe yes, maybe no, if you come back to the Lord in that seven year period, um, and then Jesus is going to come. And that's simply just not true. <laughs> so, um, and I'll show you in the Bible kind of where I'm coming from. So um, let's go ahead and look at a few verses. Honestly, really and truly, you, you really just need to look at the book of Revelation because I think that's really where it's the most clear as far as showing that um, the rapture, yes, it is. That is the second coming of Jesus, which is where all God's people um, go with him to heaven. And you see that I'll let you see that first in First Thessalonians 4, actually, and then we'll, we'll get to Revelation. So First Thessalonians 4, um, starting in verse 
13, basically Paul is speaking here and he says um, to his to these people who, who don't know, you know, the truth about God. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting verse 13, but I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you do not sorrow, even as those which have no hope. For we believe that, sorry, I'm going to go on to verse 17 uh, through to 17. It says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So God is making, or Paul's reiterating the promise of God that even though you might die here on this earth, you're going to be resurrected. You're going to go to heaven. Now, let's see when exactly that is. If you keep going um, into verse uh 15, it says, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. So there's that caught up where you get the idea of a rapture. Yes, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort each other with these words. Now, this is, in a sense, the rapture, the second coming of Christ, when all of God's people, both dead and living, are raptured, they're ascended up into heaven together. Now, the Bible, Paul doesn't mention that, oh, and maybe some people later might be saved. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Um, so that's this idea of that there's another seven years of tribulation where maybe some people you know, could turn back to God at this point. No, I believe that is a lie from the devil to allow people to think, well, it's okay if I miss the first rapture because I'll get, I'll make it for the second one. No, there is no more chance. Can you, and I, you need to bring that table? I apologize. <laughs> Sorry, I think, I think Jay cut in a little bit on accident. <laughs> oh, your audio is a little bit squishy. All right, I'm going to keep going unless maybe put something in my chat box if you guys have anything to say to me because it's a little bit choppy. All right, so let's go to 1 Corinthians in the meantime um, and look at chapter 15. And just again, reiterating how the Bible describes the second coming of Jesus, which again, it is people getting carried up, carried away, which another word for that is rapture, but you never see the word rapture in the Bible. Um, at least not in the King James Version. Um, and if you go to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse um, 52, it kind of talks about the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. And it says basically in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, again, the, the sound of this trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So basically those that are alive shall be changed into, you know, incorruptible. Um, so, when this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall it be brought to pass saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so basically, again, this and it, it ends here. It's like once we all go to heaven, that's it. That's our, our one and only chance uh, is when Jesus Christ comes. So we have to be ready at his second coming. And if you look again, um, like I said, in the book of Revelation, you don't see any of this period of tribulation where people get, you know, those who are lost are left behind in a sense. 
that they can be saved. That's nowhere found in, in the Bible, especially not in the book of Revelation. I know some people also bring up something in the book of Daniel, but I don't see that at all. Um, so just again, um, and I just want to reiterate this, um, like you see this in Revelation 19, it's just as far as, um, you know, at the end, right before Jesus comes um, in the last verse of Revelation 19, verse 21, it says, and the remnant, this speaking of the, the evil people of the earth, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth. Basically, this is Jesus who uh, wipes out the, the last of the evil people in the world. Um, and then if you go then to chapter 20, it talks about, you know, the wicked uh, or, you know, the verses 20 through 21 basically go through the, the judgment of the wicked and the devil being um, uh, chained for a thousand years. And um, it says that nobody was alive until basically until the uh, sorry, <laughs> until a thousand years are over. And then um, that at that time that, you know, devil will be unleashed. All those who are lost will be resurrected for the, this um, second resurrection, which is the resurrection of damnation. And that God wipes those people out and that's it. That's an end of sin. It's end of people. And when you look at the last chapter in revelation 22, um, there's a really important um, verse that I want to show you really quick. Um, and I'll just go really fast because I know we have a lot of questions and I don't want to take up too much time, but this is just really important because um, this is really the point. Um, Revelation chapter 22 in verses 11 and 12, talking about the, you know, coming to the end of time, Jesus says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he, which is filthy, let him be filthy still. So once you're saved or once you're lost at this point, that's it. Let him who's just, let him be just. Let him who's unjust, let him be unjust. He is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And verse 12, Jesus says, and behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. So once he comes, he has the reward. He already knows who's lost and saved and that's it. There's no other possible chance of salvation after Jesus comes because Jesus has already decided who has made up their mind, who wants to be saved and who wants to be lost and he'll respect our choice. And um, so again, that's <laughs> that's basically the, the summation of, you know, the rapture is, um, you could call the rapture the second coming in that, yes, that is when everybody will be carried away who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. However, there it's not um, anything like this theology of the rapture that you see in the, like the Left Behind series and a lot of popular um, Christian denominations. Um, and, you know, we see like a lot of these mega churches and things. It's, it's just not biblical. And so I just want to be, uh, give you a a heads up on this, just because if you study the Bible and somebody says, oh, do you believe in the rapture? You need to be very careful because I do believe that this rapture theology is very dangerous um, because first of all, it's not biblical. And second of all, I think it just gives people a sense of security and ease that the devil would really like you to have um, because he, he, he knows that if you can just put off salvation, if you can just put off, you know, uh, getting yourself right with the Lord, 
uh, he's got you. And so we have to be very careful that we are saved today and that we know every day that we are right with the Lord and we're ready for his second coming. Um, and just one more warning to any of those who, who, you know, who think to add to God's word, you know, maybe it's not a big deal if somebody believes in the rapture or not. Um, if you keep going down in Revelation chapter 22, um, Jesus actually gives a very serious warning about um, adding to the book of Revelation because we don't see this theology in the Bible. Um, and it says in verse 18, for I testify unto you, every man that hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, add this, these, you know, theologies that aren't based on the Bible, God said, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. So it is very serious when we talk about the book of Revelation and we talk about the second coming of Christ, that we don't add man-made <laughs> theologies and things to it. We only um, base our belief on the Bible and on his word. So um, that's what I would say to that question. Uh, Jay or Wendy, any other thoughts? Amen. And I really liked how you open up your answer saying like, yes and no, because that's how I always feel when people ask me, do you believe in the rapture? I'm like, yeah, but I don't think of it probably what you're thinking. So exactly. Great, great articulation. Well, praise the Lord. That's all we want to do is just yeah. point, us, point everybody to Jesus. You know, I, I just I find that to be so true for so many things that are kind of like these these really common things that we hear about in mainstream culture about the Bible. It's like, it's like, do you believe that, the, you know, about this aspect of the Bible? And it's like, well, I, I believe something. I believe the Bible talks about something like that and that that's important. But yeah, the interpretation that yeah. the mainstream has taken is not necessarily what I believe to be the accurate reflection of it and of what what the Bible is actually saying. And that's it's just so fascinating to me how that's so true for so many things, the rapture being one of them, but many other things as well. Amen. And when, when you think about it, you really have to remember, like, you know, we're, you know, in a time where it's, you know, there's a controversy between Christ and between Satan and you know both are fighting for our souls and Jesus mm -hmm. wants us to be saved he wants us to be in heaven but the devil wants us to be lost and the devil's going to have a counterfeit and for every truth of the bible and i think that you know this rapture theology is really um so it's been so successful because it appeals to um you know something very human in us, which is that we would hope that even if it wasn't us, maybe our loved ones could be saved once, you know, once Jesus comes, like maybe there's another chance. And really, um, I think that, you know, that's so dangerous that, you know, we are, we live in a, a society where the devil has had a lot of time to read the Bible and make a lot of counterfeits um, for a lot of God's truth. And we have to be sure that we are studying the Bible for ourselves and we know what God's word says. We're going to stick to it, even if the rest of the world, you know, doesn't. Because like Jesus said in, you know, Matthew 7, 14, you know, for straight is the way and narrow is the um, path that leads to life. And broad is the path that leads to destruction. Um, but that way to life, few there be that find it. So we have to really um, know God's word and stand by it, you know, Amen. no matter what. Amen. All right. I think we have some more questions to get to. We do. All right. Good question. All right. So 
Blake is asking, quote, apple of his eye, quote, is a common saying that appears in two different books in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32.10 and Zechariah 2.8. In the two instances where the saying apple of his eye appears, who does the word his refer to? Great. Thank you. So let's take a look at those verses. And this this is, I think, um, one of the neatest terms in the Bible, this concept of apple of his eye. So um, I'm excited to dig into it a little bit. So let's take a look first at Deuteronomy 38. And and um, let's start at verse 10. That was the, the, ten, the, the verse cited. And it says, He found him in the desert and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. So, and as you see here in the NKJV version, that last his eye was in capital letters, or, or at least the H was capitalized to let you know that that his there was God. And that's correct. If you look at that verse and you, you even go back to verse 8, it says, when the Most High divided their inheritance of the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, like this whole verse is talking about what God has done for his people. And so it goes from talking about he, God, to talk about them versus basically his people. God, his people. God does this for his people. God does that for his people. So when it says he kept him as the apple of his eye, is referring to Jacob, which is symbolically representing God's people. God has kept God's people as the apple of his eye. And if you're not sure what the apple of his eye means, it, it just is referring to the pupil, you know, or that little, uh, you know, the darkest black spot in your eye. That's what it's referring to. And, and just think about it. If there's an object flying towards your eye, what's your natural reaction? It should be like immediately like you blink, you put your hand in front of you, you do everything to guard your eye. Because you know it's so tender, it's so sensitive, it's so important. And, and that's kind of the, what God's trying to convey here. He's saying like, you, you Jacob, you Israel, you're like the apple of my eye, and my natural reaction is just to immediately go and want to protect you. You're that close and intimate and important to me. And if we look at Zechariah 2.8, sort of the same thing. It says, for thus says the Lord, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye so that again that his there is referring to the lord of hosts and if anybody touches one of god's person people he's touching god god's saying that what they do to you, what they do to you god jesus and god saying they do to me and, and that's a very important concept of the Bible. I've heard so many amazing sermons on that, and we just can never keep this in mind enough, I think. If you look at 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, this is where David basically has just come to realize how horrible he was, how he had raped um, Bathsheba, caused her to have a son, and then, well, she was pregnant, killed her husband. Basically, so guilty rape and murder, and he's trying to cover it up, and he's, you know, all comfortable thinking he got away with it. And then Nathan, the prophet, comes and prophesies to him and says, hey, you know, what you did was wrong. And, 
and it reaches David to his heart. And what are the words out of his mouth? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say, oh, I sinned against Bathsheba. I sinned against um, the Hittite that I killed. No, he says, I sinned against the Lord. David understood when we sin, we really sin against God. And I understand this now because we have sort of two cats like hanging out by our place. And we love both of them, but they don't love the fact that there's two of them. And so these two tall male cats that aren't siblings, like, will fight each other. And it breaks our heart. We love them both. We want both to be happy. We want both of them be by us. And so when they hurt each other, it's like, oh, come on, guys. Oh, we love you. And same thing with parents, right? If you did something to one of their kids, who's really affected? Yeah, the kid is too, but it hurts the parents and it changes the parents' life too. And God says that's how it is for him. And check this out. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. God says, or do you not, or I should say this is Paul saying it, but under inspiration, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. God paid for you. He like went to the store, paid everything he had to them by you, because he wants you. Therefore, glorify the Lord in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God even, he, he's not just your creator, but he paid for you so that you're his. And so, again, when something happens to you, it's happening to God. He feels it. Um, and then, I, you know, we all know this verse, like Matthew 25. Uh, Jesus starts talking about, you know, where people, one set of people did things for, for the least of these. Uh, you know, fed people, gave them shirts off the back, went to visit them in prison. And, this, and Jesus says, you did these to me. And people are like, when did we do that for you? And Jesus says, when, you know, assuredly, I say to you, this is verse 40 of Matthew 25. It says, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And same thing, Jesus goes on to say, like, what, whatever bad things you did to the least of these were done unto him. So however we treat one another, whether it's by, out of love or hate, out of selfishness or giving, God says we're doing that to him. He takes it all personally. He feels that. He connects with that. So uh, I love these verses because it really does show just what a deep, close connection God has with us and, and gets more to the, uh, the heart of what sin is and how bad it is and, 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 and how much God just really wants us to love everyone. And when we do that, we're also loving God. And he is so happy. He, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just love this verse. You know, what are your guys' thoughts? I, I think it's, it's amazing. I, I feel the same way you do about how beautiful this verse is and how, how much it really conveys God's love for people. I mean, you know, we, we've heard the term, the, the apple, you know, someone is the apple of their of someone's eye in culture for a long time. And, you know, to see that that comes from 
the word of God. And that comes that not just the word of God, but the love of God. Like mm-hmm. it, it is, it's core to who he is. Like we are the most beautiful thing to him. We are the most desirable thing to God. He, he loves us that much, desires us that much, wants us to be well with, you know, everything he has everything he is and that i think is just a really beautiful um beautiful concept amen amen i've always liked those verses too (laughs) say that we're the apple of his eye because i remember being like oh i remember that saying like it's kind of an older saying but it just means something that's so precious to you Mm -hmm. and also precious to God like that's beautiful and yeah it's just beautiful because it gives us a glimpse of his heart you know that he he really does love us and and not just like you know in a way I think that the like we're saying the world portrays God in in a lot of ways like that you know God is mean and he's vindictive and scary and he just wants to you know strike us or something no God's not that way he's he loves us very much um he only, you know, sends forth judgments if it's for, you know, the the greater good of, you know, other people who are innocent um, and that sort of a thing. So, so I, I love, <laughs> I love those verses too. So I, I appreciate this question coming in. Thank you so much, Blake, for asking. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. we have a question here. Should we take this one right now or do you want a moment to prepare for it? Uh, we can... Either or, what do you want to do? Um, I'll, I'll maybe I can prep the answer while you do the next question, Tina. Sounds like a plan. All right, let's do it. Let's get our next question up, and then we'll come back to to Kyle. So, okay, so Mark is asking: Was Barnabas one of the twelve apostles since he traveled with Paul often? That's a really great question, Mark. And that's actually something I thought of in the past before, too, because, um, you know, when it talks about the 12 apostles, that's a very specific group of people. Um, But then there's also Paul, who's also named an apostle, but he's not part of the 12. And so um, I'll show that to you in the Bible really quick. So let's um, and then then you have this character, Barnabas, who is kind of, you know, in the mix. And so when we talk about the apostles, um, we have to first I think, again, (laughs) go back to dictionary definition. What is an apostle? What does that even mean? And so when you look at um, the word apostle in the dictionary, it basically basically means somebody who's sent on a mission. Um, And also a person, it can mean somebody who initiates a great moral reform or somebody who advocates an important important belief system. So um, this is definitely, you know, would characterize the 12 apostles that, you know, started the Christian church um, after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, when you think about, well, who were those 12 apostles? Um, You know, that would have been um, 11 of the 12 apostles that Jesus called to him. You think of the children's song, you know, Jesus, um, there were 12 disciples. Jesus called to help him. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, his brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas Iscariot, who is not an apostle, (laughs) and then Bartholomew. And so um, of, after the 11, we see in um, Acts chapter 1 who they replaced Judas Iscariot with. So if you look at Acts chapter 1 in verses, um, it kind of starts around verse uh, 20, 
22. Um, so basically, Peter here is saying like, hey, we, you know, this whole mess happened with um, Judas being numbered with, you know, the 12. But because he's now gone, we need to take somebody in to replace him. And so what happened was, um, uh, Peter says, in, starting verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John. So we want somebody who started with the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be witness of us, um, of his resurrection. And so if you keep going, it reads in verse 23, and they appointed two. So there was two people that they were considering as being part of the 12 apostles. Um, one was Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also named Justice and Matthias. And then in verse um, 24, basically, um, says they prayed and said, Lord, which knows the heart of all men, show us whether of these two you have chosen. And um, in verse 25, so this is very clear that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he may go into his own place. And in verse 26, it says, and they gave forth their lots or they cast lots, like they rolled the dice and it fell upon Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So we see, um, you know, 11 of the 12, except for Judas being, you know, the apostles. And then they added Matthias later after Judas fell. So would Barnabas then have been an apostle? Because, you know, you know, later on we see Paul being called an apostle. And that's very clear that, you know, Paul was an apostle. It says it in various parts of, uh, you see it in the book of Acts, as well as all over um, in the New Testament where, you know, Paul writes like in Galatians chapter one, verse one, it says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the father who raised him from the dead. So Paul was an apostle because he was somebody who initiated something, but it was more because Paul initiated the gospel going to the Gentiles. And so Paul is an apostle, but he's not part of the 12. So it's a little bit different. Now, when it came to Barnabas, who worked side and side with Paul, um, we don't see in the Bible that he's named an apostle. And it's actually very clear. It's very distinct um, the way the Bible um, shows this. So, for example, we see Barnabas coming into the picture a little bit later in Acts chapter four. And you see that um, basically how he began his ministry, he couldn't have been an apostle because he didn't start like we saw with Matthias. He didn't start from the baptism of John. He, he came into the ministry later. Um, but you see in Acts chapter four, kind of his beginning in the ministry. And it says, um, talking about um, kind of the early church and how they were they were doing things. And it, verse 34, it says, neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought, and brought the prices of the things that were sold. Um, in verse 35, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and, dis and distribution was made unto every man according as he had. So there were people that were selling their land and giving the money to the apostles to help the ministry go forward. And you see here Barnabas coming into play in verse 36. And it says, and Joseph, who by the apostles surnamed Barnabas. So Barnabas was named Barnabas by the apostles. They never said, you are now an apostle. They just said, hey, now you're Barnabas because you're saying your name used to be Joseph. Um, and, and they called him Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. So he was, that was his nature. There was something special about him. That's why they gave him this special name of Barnabas. 
um, and he was a Levite in the country of Cyprus. And verse 37 says, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see that Barnabas is a very serious and faithful um, member of the early church, and he definitely did a lot of ministry. We see him going around that he was called by the Holy Spirit to work with um uh, to work with Paul and, you know, preach the gospel, but he was definitely not an apostle. And again, you see this really clear. I think the most clear in, like, if you look up uh, the word Barnabas and apostle, and you look through um, the books of book of Acts, you see it very distinct that it's like Barnabas, Paul, apostles. So they're distinct groups of people. And I think you see this again, like I said, most clear in the book of Acts chapter 14. Um, and this is the story basically where, um, they were preaching in a city called Iconium and um, Paul sees a man crippled and heals him. And there were Jews and there were Greeks there, but these, you know, these Greeks, these people that were you know, not, didn't know the true God yet. They saw, you know, Paul heal somebody and they thought this is, uh, these are the gods. These men are not men. These are gods. And they, um, if you see in, let me see, uh, in verse 11, um, it says when the people, so Acts chapter 14, verse 11, it says, and when the people saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted the voice saying in the speech of like, Keone, yeah, I got to sing it right. The gods are come down unto us in the likeness of men. And verse 12, it says, and they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was a chief speaker. So these, you know, um, pagan people seeing the works of God think that they you know, they ascribe to Barnabas and Paul, you know, their their own religion. Um, but it says something very uh, interesting in verse 14. And this is what I want to point out. It says, which when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul heard it, heard of it, they rent their clothes, they tore their clothes and ran in among the people crying out, basically reversing, saying, why do you do these things? We are also men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities um, unto the living God, which made heaven and earth to see and all the things therein. So they're like, no, you're getting deeper into your paganism. We want you to come out of that. We're trying to teach you the truth. And so Again, though, you see in verse 14, apostles, Barnabas, Paul, very distinct. Um, Barnabas was definitely not an apostle. He um, he began his ministry later. Um, he, In order to even be considered for apostleship of the 12, he would have had to start um, back in the time of uh, John the Baptist and been part of that, you know, baptism of repentance and that message leading into the ministry of Jesus. And Barnabas um, didn't come to the picture at that time. And again, we see, you know, um, Paul being labeled an apostle. But again, that was because Paul had initiated the gospel to the Gentiles. And um, he he was basically the founder, the leader. Um, he was a forerunner in that. And Barnabas wasn't. Barnabas was kind of his, I want to say wingman, but he was a supporter in that ministry. And he definitely, you know, has a really important role in the early church. And I'm sure, you know, Paul couldn't have done what he did without the support of Barnabas in a lot of ways. Um, and we see like the Holy, um, you know, in the book of Acts where it says the Holy Spirit said, send Paul and Barnabas to these people. So he was definitely led by the Holy Spirit. But did he have the title of apostle? No. So I know there's a little bit of information there, but I hope that uh, answers your question. Uh, Jerry, Wendy, any other thoughts on that one? Nope. Nope. That was... I'm amazed how much you're able to get in there. I'm like, wow, I would have just made that yes and no answer, but I'm 
I'm like, I learned a lot right now. <laughs> okay, good. I know. I'm sorry. I just, I love the Bible. It's so fascinating. Wow. Like just study, you know, like you start reading, you're like, oh, oh, there's more to this. And, and that's the beauty of scripture. And I, that's why we appreciate your question so much because it helps us look deeper into the word of God. And you just see the beautiful gems and of truth that are in there um, and how it's just so interwoven and complex. It's like, this couldn't have been, you know, a cutting, cunningly devised fable. It's too rich, too, um, too, you know, too complex to be, you know, something made up. It's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. We have a comment from Diana. This happy Sabbath from Maryland. Happy to see you too, Diana. Great to have you here this evening. And yeah. shall we dive into Kyle's? Oh. Oh, and, and Mandy, welcome. Thank you for joining us too on YouTube. Yes. Shall we dive into Kyle's question? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. All right. So Kyle says, how can God claim that he's better than us when he rules us with a, quote, do as I say, not as I do, quote, policy, setting us with the rule that we should not kill while indulging frequently in genocidal acts? Hey, Kyle, I just want to say, hey, thanks so much for joining us from Twitch. Um, glad you could join us. And this is a great question because I know a lot of people struggle with this. And and it's understandable because there are a lot of Christians, lifelong Christians, who don't understand this and really misrepresent God. And, and a lot of people also don't even, they just even give up on the Old Testament, just say, whatever, there's two different gods and I just believe the New Testament. But I, I guarantee you there's one God of the entire Bible and his love is seen throughout. And I think the most important verse, if you're to read the Bible, is, is this one, 1 John 4, 16. It says, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. So God is love. And if we read anything else in the Bible to be contrary to, to that, I assure you we're misunderstanding it. Now, does love mean never, ever kill? Like we know, I, I like to use the example of the, the old movie, Old Yeller. And if you've never seen it, go watch it. Very sad movie. But uh, I'll give you a spoiler alert. <laughs> right? Spoiler alert if you haven't watched it. But at the end of the, the movie, the dog Old Yeller saves this whole family. Like he's the family's dog, like their main dog. He saves them from a terrible, rabid animal. And then, of course, because that animal had rabies, Old Yeller gets rabies. And then he, he loses his mind and then starts barking and, and threatening almost to kill the whole family. And, and the movie pretty much ends with the dad grabbing a shotgun walks out, and then hear the shot. How could a loving dad who loves the dog go and shoot the dog? But if you have to understand, though, that dog had rabies, he was not in his, own, his bright mind, and he posed a threat to that dad's family. Out of love, he had to put down that dog. And it's the same exact thing with God when it comes to sin. God does not want to lose anybody. As, you, as the Bible says, the Old Testament, why, O Israel, will you die? Choose life. 
God wants you to choose life, wants all of us to choose life, but he gives us a choice. He is not a dictator. He says, choose life or choose death. There's two paths before you. You can pick them, but he cannot allow people to go on and continue on the path of sin. And, and if you really understand God's system, which is the most perfect system ever, you'll start understanding why sin cannot be tolerated in the smallest amount. Because even the smallest amount of sin will eventually trickle into a giant cascade of suffering, of death, like everything we experience now in this world is that's oh, terrible. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all our health issues, I mean, just wilting of plants. Uh, I mean, you see the birds and animals suffering. Uh, you know, the, the illness going around, right? That um, that many mentioned, like we're dealing with all these things and it's because of sin and God wants to put an end to it. God can't wait to rebuild the earth, rebuild everything so that it's back to being perfect like before Adam and Eve sinned. That's what he wants. He wants nobody to die. His Bible says he doesn't want there to be any more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more stealing, no more killing, no many. And so, like, you, you know, we could look at the Ten Commandments, for example, as being God being unfair, dictatorial. But the Bible also calls those the law of liberty. Because if, yeah, you could say, oh, well, God's restraining me, but he's also putting restraints in on everybody else. And when we're all acting under God's law, it becomes the most perfect place ever. And can, ultimately, the entire law boils down to love everybody else. And to love, you must be willing to sacrifice a bit um, and put the interests of, uh, interests of others first. They come first. And so if I'm watching out for Wendy, I'm watching out for Tina, Tina's watching out for Wendy, watching out for me, Wendy's watching out for Tina and I. Is anybody now left out? Is anybody being forgotten? Is anybody not getting their needs met? No. And, and now there's no more stealing, no more killing, no more adultery, no more. You go down the list, all these bad things that God wants to put in, an end with. We should want an end of those things too. If we like murder, if we like stealing, if we like adultery, the problem isn't with God. And we shouldn't be upset at God for wanting to put an end to those things. God, I mean, again, like out of love, God wants us to be happy. He wants us to have joy. He wants us to have peace. Just look up those words in the Bible. You're going to see it time and time and time again, because that's how God wants us to be. He doesn't want that to be depression. He doesn't want there to be ex in ex to be anxiety. He doesn't want there to be sadness, sorrow. Again, he just wants us to be joy and peace and happy. And to have those things, sin must be abolished. And so, um, and I want to give a little bit more understanding too about really how sin works. Um, let's look at Romans 6, 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of life, or the, sorry, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So look at this. So it's sin. It's sin that repays you with death. And it's God that gives you eternal life. And then we could choose, do we want to be with sin or do we want to be with God? 
God's given us that choice. But God says, at some point in time, I am going to wipe out all sin. We wipe, I'm going to wipe it out. I'm going to put an end to it. And God doesn't, again, doesn't want to kill. Like, if you go back to the Old Testament, you know, we often cite it as the destruction of, of all those people that were in the land of Canaan. Here's God's original plan. Exodus 23, 28. He says, And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite before you. God's plan was to send out hornets. So he's just going to sing them or, or scare them, push them out. And the Israelites were supposed to just march into Canaan. But it was the Israelites, their lack of faith, their disobedience to God that led to the slaughtering uh, and, and the fighting and the battles and all these other problems. God hoped to have avoided that. If his perfect will was carried out, there wouldn't have been uh, these battles that people rightfully don't like and shouldn't. Um, and if we go down and uh, look at, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, shouldn't they have been destroyed? I mean, look at what state they were in. Genesis 19, 4 to 5, it says, Now before they, referring to like Lot and the angels, um, lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. Why are they surrounding the house? That doesn't sound like they're going to be nice and, um, you know, just negotiate fairly. They surrounded the house and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So what would, who's trying to impose their will? Who's trying to really... Um, take advantage and hurt and harm the other people. Like the whole city got to the point where this is what they were wanting to do, wanted to gang rape these two angels who were there, strangers. Like this is how wicked they came. They they did not even think about how evil they they are, that they shouldn't do this. They ignored Lot trying to stop them. Like this is why God says, like, these people now got to point to the point they're so dangerous, they're so bad. The only merciful thing to do is to shoot, shoot them like, you know, like old yeller, put them under. Mer mercifully, God didn't make them suffer. He, he put them under um, and wiped them out, just like God is going to do. Um, and can I, sorry. Yeah, no, please go ahead. And sorry, just to make the point when it came to Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, the wiping out of that city, you know, um, God didn't want to do it, but, and he told his servant Abraham about it. And when you look at in Genesis chapter 18, um, in starting in verse, um, 26, we see, um, Abraham pleading with God saying, don't destroy the city. And he says, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous people out of these thousands of people, if there's just 50 righteous, um, then I will spare the place for their sakes. And basically, you know, God is saying, okay, if you find 50 people, sure, let's all spare the city. And he's like, okay, what about 40? What about 30? And there were not any righteous in the city. There was nobody who was living in a righteous way. I mean, and when we say unrighteous, it's like you're saying, they're just wholly given over to evilness, like of just hurting innocent people. Um, that, And it wasn't like, it was, you know, they were just, you know, not you know, doing things that don't really hurt other people. No, they were doing the things that were malicious and very harmful to other people. And yeah. it's not that they lacked perfection. Yeah. Or that they struggled <laughs> with sin. Yeah. It was that they had fully given themselves over to evil. So yeah. that's like 
like being with rabies almost. Like they in, were the carnal. In today's in you know, if we if we pick like, you know, hot more hot button topics in, in today's culture, this is literally like, you know, a a a group of of really perverted, violent rapists going into a school and harming innocent children. I mean, like we would never allow that to happen yeah. today. That's how God is looking at this situation. And he's saying, these are my children. The apple of his eye. These are the apple of my eye. And I, I don't want them to be harmed. And he is literally putting warnings up to these violent, evil people saying, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. And every time he says they don't don't go there, they keep pushing that boundary further and mm -hmm. further and further until they have fully given themselves over to evil. And there is no end to their evilness. There is yeah. nothing that will stop them except destruction. That is the point where God steps in and says, look, I've tried to warn you. God is long suffering. Right. He's like, I have tried to warn you. I have sent this sign and this sign and this sign and this and this and this and this. And you keep refusing to stop the evilness. You, yeah. you keep. And it's not even a matter of punishment. It's not about deterrence or punishment. It's right. just like, as a matter of fact, for my other people to live right. and to survive and to enjoy life, you cannot exist. Yeah, yeah. it's just for the protection of the innocent. Yeah. Um, and we see, you know, this with, you know, these people like that God called to, to destroy, like the Amalekites. God said, you have to, because the thing is, um, if any of them survived, they were going to bring in their evil ways. And if you look at what the evil that they were bringing in, um, look at Jeremiah chapter 32. Uh, what, what they brought in was the worship of Baal and Moloch. And when you look at what that was, um, it says in verse uh, 35, and they built the high places of Baal, which are in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire unto Moloch, which I commanded them not Neither it came into my mind that they should do this abomination and cause Judah to sin. So basically these people that God said wipe them out is because they were bringing in child human sacrifice. And they were telling God's people, hey, if you want our gods, these f false gods of Baal and Molech to bless you, you need to sacrifice your children. And that's literally what God was like so upset about was he was like these peoples that I'm saying wipe them out is because he was trying to protect innocent babies and children. And yeah. so when you see, you know, that's what God was trying to do was, was protect. Then you don't see it as like, Oh God's just this nasty, you know, dad in the sky. Who's just do as I say, not as I do. No, God is saying, Hey, there comes a point where I have to protect, especially the innocent and particularly innocent children. Um, because I really do believe that there's a special place in God's heart for children. Um, and so, yeah, when God says wipe out a people group, it wasn't because you know, he's just yeah. mean. It was, mm -hmm. again, they, these people were so entrenched in as this is part of their culture to do human sacrifices, especially to children. It's just it had to be put away with and done completely. Yeah. Um, he doesn't like it. He wish he didn't have to. Yeah, exactly. It breaks and he calls his heart. It, 
Mm-hmm. He calls it his strange act. He doesn't enjoy this yeah. at all. Isaiah, um, Isaiah 28, 20, 28, 21. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you love him, do it. Yep. And then Kyle has a second question that's really good. I like this one too. Uh, I think a lot of us struggle with this question or, or grapple with what you ask here, Kyle. But I think we could do this one quickly. Okay. okay. So his so Kyle's second question is: If we are to only have sex for the purpose of procreation and to do so outside of the scope of procreation is sinful, then why would God create us with an overabundance of nerve endings in our reproductive organs, making sex extremely pleasurable? Yes, I, I have to say I grapple with this myself. I definitely can wholly relate to it. I think a lot of people here probably would say that, Kyle. Um, but we just have to think back to the original plan. Like, God, yes, I agree. God made us that way. So why? Because he wanted to be that pleasurable in the context of marriage, in the in the context of, of what he gave um, Adam and Eve, and then for the rest of us. He wanted that. Um, and I have to say, in the context of marriage, it is so wonderful, and things are very different. And and it's you don't get maybe the super highs, but you don't get the lows, and it's just a steady, consistent, amazing, wonderful thing. But then you have Satan who comes in and wants to corrupt it. He wants to tempt us with novelty. He wants us to tempt us with you know sudden indulgence. But those passions are supposed to be there to keep you like coming back to your wife, like to, you know you have me keep coming and. Saying, oh, I gotta be really nice to Wendy today. <laughs> I or you know, I want to um it's supposed to just build you deeper with your relationship yeah. with God or with your wife, or with your spouse. Like it really it's a great thing. It really it almost adds like a magnetic force to the relationship on top of what you already have. And so outside of the marriage, it's tough. Yeah, when you're single, it's tough. Um I, I think it's important to note too that like Sex isn't just for procreation. Like, that's one element of it. But it is meant to be a unifier, a connector. I mean, in in marriage, we become... A bonding agent. Yeah, Yeah. in marriage, we become one. And that is is part of that bonding and that deeper Mm -hmm. connection and that deeper intimacy. And so it, it is... It's meant for more than just procreation. And even science is backing this up. We're learning now Mm -hmm. about the oxytocin. Yeah, I mean, we've known about oxytocin for a while. Yeah, there's so many more chemicals, too, that go on in the bonding process. Yeah, and so the pressure with when these chemicals come through, Mm -hmm. you know, grow closer with. So every time you're getting closer and closer and closer with that person. And so when you're doing with multiple people, it's going to tear you apart. And it's going to rip your heart out a little bit. And who knows what other things will, will come about it. Tina, it looks like you got. Oh, thought? it was. Um, yeah, when you look, Kyle, you're. The thing is, you're putting something out there that the Bible never said, and I think that's a really big problem when it comes to you know addressing questions. Is I don't know if somebody told you this, but that's not what the Bible says. So you have to understand that. Um, sex being only for the purpose of procreation. The Bible never says that. The Bible says that the bed is undefiled. You see that in Hebrews 13, 4. So the Bible never said that sex is only for procreation. It's between, but it is supposed to be between a man and a woman. And if, you know, if you enjoy it outside of marriage, that's a problem because it's, there's dangers in it, just like my friends Jane and Wendy are saying. But um, you're yeah, missing I, out. 
Yeah, you're missing out on a deeper, more amazing experience. Mm -hmm. The point of marriage is for us to experience on a smaller scale what the Godhead experiences in their unity. So we, it's a unique, amazing thing to be able to be one with someone as God is like one with his, with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And and I think, you know, some people say, well, like, if, you know, if, 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 if sex in, is, is supposed to be made for marriage, why is it, why do they have it better? Why did they have it have better outside of marriage? Well, that really comes down to a relationship with the partner and the intimacy and the connection and also a rewiring of our brain. Our when this is one of the fascinating things ab- about this uh, experience is that when it's outside of marriage, it act, or 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 done in engaged in in what the Bible considers to be like sinful indulgences, it it, it the Bible says it's a sin against our own body. And the reason is because it actually changes the way our our brain, our body, our nervous system functions. And this is one of the reasons why um, why sexual abuse at, of young children is such a problem because it actually grooms. It starts to create a grooming of of a, a, an adaptation, like changes in the brain and body and nervous system that God never intended to be there. And when when that happens, it it increases the propensity for, and the desire for further engagement in that kind of behavior and activity. And what it does, what that does is it, it, um, it creates a false sense of fulfillment that continues to be more and more self like self-indulgent and self-fulfilling or like self-serving instead of the way God intended it to be, which is to be others serving, that it's a mutual thing. It's a, it's meant for our pleasure, but it's also meant for our partner's pleasure. And when we have this in the in a proper kind of um experience and our and our nervous system is functioning in that way, then it's actually continuing to draw us closer and closer to our partner in in service to our partner. And it's a reciprocal kind of thing that deepens and strengthens the relationship while bringing fulfillment. And and, and actually that's a really important point. Um, Ephesians 5 25, like the command there is husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loves the church. And, and as part of that, there's so much, there's so much false teachings out there amongst Christians where like there's pastors basically saying husbands should be able to rape their wives. And the Bible almost says the opposite sex. Yeah. You should be able to enjoy it, but it's also for you. Yeah. As when you were saying to pleasure your spouse. Yeah. And it's about the giving and it's just this amazing thing where you give and they give and both receive and it I, I, it just blows my mind it's it, 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 what it is is beyond i say our, our comprehension and it's supposed to be this really spiritual experience with this one person for life yeah and when that relationship it when it is a a healthy relate healthy marriage relationship that is really reciprocal and service to others and then that that intimacy is there. It's like nothing you could ever imagine otherwise. But the key is that you have to have the solid relationship because there are unfortunately many marriages, many relationships that are not built on a solid, healthy foundation. They're you know they got together, they got married, but 
they the love isn't there, the connection isn't there, the um the devotion and commitment isn't there. They're, you know, there's they're not alone, but they're lonely. Yeah, they're they're together, but they still feel alone. Well, intimacy in that kind of situation is only gonna be so so much. But when you have like true deep connection and reciprocity and 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 you know a, a proper healthy union i mean it's oh it's mind-blowing so yeah thank you for asking give us a chance to address this because uh, this is a very important topic for a lot of people and as you can see here we're not afraid to delve into these issues yeah. that some people get squeamish about they're squeamish about <laughs> yeah for sure um, as much as I would love to keep us going, I know we even have another question, but we're out of time. We're over time. So um, you got to kind of quit here. I'm sorry. <laughs> so about um, Mandy, we'll get back to Mandy. Yeah, definitely. So we appreciate all these comments that have come in. We appreciate your questions. Um, and again, this is live. So um, as you can tell, you know, we, we're just uh, speaking from the heart and that's kind of where we're at. So um Let's go ahead and um, close for tonight. But we want to remind everybody, again, we are live every Friday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And we'd love for you guys to join us um, and watch our show live so we can get some of your questions and comments as we are speaking on the show. And be sure to like us and share us on our social media. We're on YouTube, Twitch, and um Facebook. Sorry, I didn't think about that for a second. And um, so, yeah, again, like and share. We really appreciate that. And we just want to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you all who gave us your comments and questions. And um, again, if you have a question you would like to formally submit to our show, be sure to go to our website, BibleAsk.org forward slash live. And we would love to feature your question on our show. So before we close, um, Jay, Wendy, you want to say a quick word of prayer before we head out? Sure. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for this um, time that you have given us. We thank you for these questions that have come in and the chance to share your love with people. And we thank you for the Sabbath day and this time to spend with you and draw closer to you and get to know your love for us. And um, we just thank you so much for for all that you do in, in our lives and and even and to protect us, Lord, we thank you so much for um, having limits as to the what what you will tolerate and what what you will allow to happen. And um, we just pray that you will continue to be with each person who has tuned in tonight and help each of us, Lord, to know your love in a deeper way, in a stronger way, and in a way that is ever more meaningful in our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. And again, be sure to uh, check us out again next week, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We hope to see you again then. Thanks so much. God bless. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.